MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Texas Republicans have proposed a bill that would let the Department of Public Safety hunt, arrest, and deport undocumented immigrants. We have a great show today. The Washington Post's Ashley Parker stops by to talk Trump's impending indictment. Then we'll talk to Politico's Ian Ward about the Federal Society's newest turns and twists. But first, we have the host of the Origin Story podcast, Ian Dunt. Welcome back to Fast Politics fan favorite and my personal favorite, Ian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Our special correspondent from the UK. Wait, but doesn't this mean I've been demoted? Because last time I spoke to you, I was the whole of fucking Europe. But now apparently I'm back to just the UK. That's right. No, no. Our special European correspondent will give you Italy and France and Germany. Sure, you can have them. Oh, good. Thank you. No, no. Let us not say mean things about those countries of which I have sold my memoir because I might have to go and try to sell them books. Ian, what the fuck is happening over there? And why do you guys seem to be getting worse? <laughs> oh, I'm not, 
not sure that we are getting worse. I think. Oh well, congratulations. Yeah, we've been. We're sort we of are. just stumbling along the bottom of the barrel now. Really, there's there's no real sense of you know if you were to take our previous prime minister Liz Truss or our prime minister before that Boris Johnson, they were they were probably worse than Rishi Sunak, the guy that we have now. You know, they they were in the real let's just strip naked, pour gasoline everywhere, and just set this whole fucker on fire sort of category. Whereas Rishi Sunak has like a little bit more sense to him and a little bit more moderation. So we're not strictly improving, but I I think probably we're not declining anymore. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. So would you say, Richie Sudak, I mean, for those of us who need to make conversation with our European friends, (laughs) or (laughs) is he better than Liz Trust? Yes, but then you've got to remember that Liz Trust was only in office for a few short weeks and in that time the Queen <laughs> died and she destroyed the British economy. So uh, uh, as a sort of, you know, set of achievements, she's she's not hard to hurdle over really. He's a very odd fish, Rishi Sunak. So the way he likes to present himself and I think the person that he truly is is a kind of mid-level European technocrat. That's really what he is. You know, he's not particularly charismatic. Right. He, he, he likes to pride himself on fixing problems. He's incredibly nerdy and genuinely nerdy. He's not putting it on. And so lots of the stuff he does is sort of tolerably okay. I mean, in any kind of rational country, he certainly wouldn't be prime minister. He would be a sort of ambitious young junior minister in a a minor department. But nevertheless, you know, he is prime minister and he's better than any of at least the three people that have preceded him. So he sort of sets out and goes, I'm going to fix some of these Brexit problems. And he comes back, he's come up with a solution with the Europeans to the Northern Irish issue, which has sort of bedeviled the, the, the Brexit arrangements for some time. And it's sort of tolerable. It's sort of allowable, pretty lukewarm stuff, but okay. Can you explain what it is? Yeah. So um, the, the big problem that we had with Brexit was, you know, you, you're going to pull out of the regulatory system and the custom system of Europe. And that would sort of work out geographically if it wasn't for the Republic of Ireland, which is still within the European system. This has really been thought out well. Yes, exactly, exactly. So the (laughs) the peace process requires there to be no border on the island of Ireland. So between, you know, the UK's uh, Northern Ireland and the European Republic of Ireland. That meant you couldn't put the border down the middle. So what Boris Johnson did when he pulled Britain out of Europe was to say, well, fine, so we'll put the border in the Irish Sea. And what that did was just carve a hole right through the middle of the UK's territorial integrity and, of course, explode the really quite sensitive emotional and religious tensions around Ireland and around its relationship with the UK. This deal supposedly fixes that. I mean, it does it through a very, very EU system, which is this sort of crazily protracted legal process of vetoing new laws on regulations when they come in. You've got countries like, you know, Norway, they have similar, who also have quite a distant relationship to Europe, but are close to them. They have similar systems in place. Europe always likes these systems because what happens is you go, oh, look, you can complain about a new law if you want. But just for the record, if you get rid of that new law, then you're going to be blocked out of that part of the single market. And if you're blocked out of that part of the single market, you will take economic damage. So what happens is people never, ever veto the law. Like Norway occasionally like acted like it might over sort of immigration, things like that, but they never veto because the consequences are so great. And that's basically what Rishi Sunak came back with. There was a hint of a sort of Tory Brexiter rebellion led by our old friend Boris Johnson, but it kind of pissed itself <laughs> away into nothing really. And, and he seems to have gotten away with it. So on that side, it seems like it's pretty sensible stuff from Rishi Sunak. But now take this other bill that he's done, completely insane. 
It's called the EU Retained Law Bill. And this is what it does. It says, we've had 40 years of relationship with Europe. We've got European law all over our statute book. So what we're going to do is on December the 31st of this year, we're going to switch it all off. We're just, we don't even know what it is. We can't tell you what it is. We're just going to set an arbitrary deadline to switch off a bunch of laws. So when people then ask the government, so which laws are you talking about? Which ones do you know? They're like, well, we don't really know what they are. So we're going to start counting them. They counted, they got a few thousand. Later, they found a few more thousand. They now have confirmed they, they know that they do not know. Sorry to go with Donald Rumsfeld mm-hmm. on you. They know that they don't know all the laws that are going to get switched off. But they're going to switch them off anyway and basically just throw their whole regulatory system, the country's basic legal system, into complete disarray for no reason whatsoever. Now, that is like classic Brexit lunacy. So Rishi Sunak, at the same time, he's the clever technocrat fixing problems. And he's also the arsonist that's just going to burn the fucking house down because he feels like it. And it's quite unclear which of these personalities is going to come to the fore on any given day. That sounds incredible. Can you explain, so is Brexit, I mean, are we still dealing with this? Like, is there any kind of fix here now? Everyone just wants it to go away. And you can't have it go away, though. Yeah, it just can't. It can't go away because it's too big. I mean, it's really about your laws, your trading patterns, the deals you do with other people. It's, it's ultimately also about the fact that this is a pretty small country, and we're right next to the largest consumer market in the history of mankind, the largest single market in the history of mankind, and the most sophisticated one. So on that basis, you will get remorselessly pulled into its gravity. You know, it's not, you, you just, no matter what the Brexit hate, you can't make Europe just go away. <laughs> you know, you, you can't like yeah. row the island away from the European mainland and pretend that it's not happening. And so it just keeps on coming back. So now everyone's bored of it. Remainers are bored of it, leavers are bored of it, but it just won't stop happening because it's just too big an issue to, to leave by the wayside. Can you explain to me why they can't just do another vote and go back to normal? That is just poison at the moment, that whole idea. So <laughs> people like myself, and that's obviously what I want. And it, it's what... It's what everybody wants, right? Well, no, it's what half the people want, which are the people that voted <laughs> to stay. <laughs> you know, all of us that lost, we obviously want to play the game again. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. And there is, at the moment, very strong and persistent polling that shows that most people think Brexit was a mistake. We shouldn't have done it and we should go back in. However, and I know this sounds counterintuitive, but that doesn't translate into people thinking we should reopen the issue because they know what it means and they're right to know what it means, which is that we will spend another six years having all the same insanely boring debates again about regulatory divergence and custom standards and and phytosanitary checks, all of the most tedious political questions known to mankind. We'll have all of that again. All the families will fall out again over Christmas dinner and you'll be arguing with your father-in-law and everyone will hate each other again. And so they just don't want to do it. Like it's, it's basically just this sort of really pussy spot that you can't bear to pop because you think it's just going to hurt too much. So for the time being, Neither of the parties wants to reopen it, even Labour, which is supported by Remainers, populated entirely by Remainers. They just won't go ahead and say it. What they'll do is say, we're going to build a closer trading relationship. And my suggestion is that will last for five, six, seven years and gradually we'll just become closer and closer to Europe until we're sort of back in. Yeah. Oh, so you think eventually you'll just ignore Brexit away? 
Yeah, it'll be slow and tedious. And I think the, the best way, <laughs> who would have thought, and the best way of doing it will be to extract, try to extract it from the culture war element, the sort of, oh, you know, right. the lost metropolitans in the cities versus the real people in the rural areas and the towns. Right. And just to have it right. as this sort of technical process, which is about trade. And from our point of view, if you can do that, you can secure your place back there without any of the toxic poison that we unleashed over the last few years. So I think ultimately what happen. It's the direction of travel and even just demographically. I mean, if you've been to university, if you're under the age of really kind of like 55, 60 years old, you are typically pro-European. So each day that passes, this is not a nice point to make, demographically, the system improves for Remainers because more of the people who naturally opposed it, the older people shuffle off you know, life's mortal coil and more young people come online into the voting demographic who, who would vote in the next referendum. So, you know, the direction of the travel, the sort of destiny element of it is pretty clear, but it's going to be a long, slow, slow process. Can you explain to me why Boris Johnson is in trouble? Yeah, because he's a fucking moron. This time? Yeah. I mean, you know what? I wish, you know, it's weird having this at the sort of 20th anniversary of the Iraq war because Tony Blair's reputation was completely destroyed by deciding to support you guys over Iraq. Hey, 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 hey. Not me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we all have to take responsibility. You do. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, let's not now. And you know what? That was like a catastrophic, highly preventable decision, which he deserves to be massively criticized for. And yet... Right. At least it was a big call. You know, at least it was like a moment of sort of world-shaking significance. You take Boris Johnson, what does he, his career get ruined by? Because he had to have birthday parties during lockdown, you know, in his house. <laughs> like that, it, it's like you're just devolving to the status of a child. And this week, he finally got his comeuppance. This is a guy that has been lying his entire life, you know, his first jobs in journalism, he got sacked from for just basically transcribing work from other people and putting it in his copy. Throughout his political career, he just lied and lied and lied and lied, not least about Brexit. Then now it's like he finally got caught, right? He said there were no parties. He said the rules were followed at all times. He said the guidance was followed at all times. And then a series of photographs, videos come out showing him at parties with a drink in his hand, no one social distancing, blah, blah, blah. The trouble is he said all those things about there not being any parties and the rules being followed to the House of Commons. And that means that he's in contempt of the House of Commons, that he's misled the House of Commons. You can do that in two ways. You can do it intentionally or you can do it recklessly. But either way, he would be considered in contempt of the House of Commons. And so there is now an inquiry into his behavior. If that inquiry by the Privileges Committee finds that he is guilty of that, he could be sanctioned by 10 days suspension from the House of Commons. And if that happens, it triggers a recall petition from his local constituents who can basically say, well, well, we want to get rid of him. We want to have a vote to get rid of him. And that opens up the possibility that what's happening now is the end of his political career. So this week, he sat in front of the committee and answered questions. And that is the fate that is staring him in the face at the moment. Why would that be the end of his political career? Because he'll probably lose. He could come back. I mean, that's perfectly possible. But he would probably lose that by-election fight. So he would be thrown out of the Commons. Quite an extraordinary thing, by the way, for a prime minister with a huge majority at the beginning of the parliament to then finish the parliament actually getting booted out of the House of Commons, even as an MP. But something else interesting happened 
during that day that sort of signifies it, right? So he's sat there, he's answering questions. He comes across like a really angry, petulant, entitled child, just sort of shouting about, this is all nonsense. How can you question me like this to the MPs? His stories are preposterous. You know, I mean, just not even a child could believe what he was saying. But halfway through that testimony, MPs went off to vote on Rishi Sunak's Brexit deal, this Northern Ireland protocol element. And Boris Johnson had come out against that. Now, once upon a time, Boris Johnson comes out against something, he's going to get a whole mass of conservative MPs behind him. It means that the government's in real trouble. This time, just over 20 of them voted with him. Hardly any at all. It was like a drop in the ocean. He doesn't actually have that many allies left to him. So it was this kind of pitiful spectacle. He was firing his guns. He was doing all the things, all the bluster, all the sort of mock bonhomie charisma that he can deploy. And none of it was working. And his parliamentary support was falling away. And he was engaged in a process that could well see him thrown out of parliament altogether. So the way it looked this week was it was the final days of Boris Johnson. I have trouble believing that Boris will ever leave us, especially because (laughs) even if he's not in office, he still will have a sort of shadow journalistic career, right? Oh, yeah. No, he will. He will. But, you know, something interesting happened, which I think is like it's sort of like the definition of the distinction between Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, which we've spoken about before, actually, which is that Boris Johnson lost his base. He was unable to keep people with him throughout this. So yesterday they had Question Time, which is the sort of flagship BBC current affairs program. It's terrible. I mean, it is fucking dreadful, but but it is. It's the flagship debate of lots of people screaming at each other for no reason. I'm sorry, but I don't understand why we don't have that in America. Well, actually, the fun part of it is just watching members of the public get to scream at cabinet secretaries. And that's actually quite a rewarding emotional experience. But nevertheless, it's not the place you go to for forensic detailed political debate. Um, right. And in the audience, the by by a long distance, the, the audience had voted for Boris Johnson in the last election more than any other single party that were available. And they were asked yesterday by the host, can you put your hand up if you believe Boris Johnson? And not one single person in that hall put their hand up. That's sort of the key distinction to me of like, you know, Donald Trump can come out and say it about the election or about whatever else. And a set amount of people will follow through with him. With Boris Johnson, he lost those guys. He lost his base. And because he lost his base, and now he's losing his support in the parliamentary party, yes, he'll still be writing pieces for The Telegraph and still be writing really badly researched books about Churchill in which he pretends that he's his modern day representative. (laughs) But he won't have that political strength. And at the moment, I have to say, Throughout, for the first time in my lifetime, you would say that his star is significantly on the decline and it feels like we're closing the page on his influence on British politics, his heavy duty influence on British politics. Jesus, poor Boris. No, don't say that. How can you even say that? <laughs> He's a terrible, <laughs> terrible guy. So he could really be brought down by Partygate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he sort of already has been, right? I mean, he, he, he already lost his position in Downing Street. You know, the thing that I think is going to kill him is this. Again, in a pretty Trumpian way, he's gone down constantly trying to discredit and malign and corrode the basic democratic institutions around him. So the Privileges Committee is established by the House of Commons according to rules that are set by the House of Commons. It is a parliamentary body. Boris Johnson has spent the last few weeks calling it a kangaroo court, claiming it was rigged against him, claiming everyone's biased and they're changing the terms of reference and basically 
questioning the integrity of all the MPs who sit on it, including five Conservative MPs. His allies in the media, like Nadine Dorries, arguably the stupidest woman in British political life, have been doing exactly the same <laughs> sorts of attacks. Same with Jacob Rees-Mogg. So it's been a really sustained assault on the committee. Now, the interesting thing is, during the committee hearings, towards the end, the MPs started asking him about those comments. And they were doing it in a way that demonstrated their absolute abject anger towards him for what he had done. I suspect if he had not tried to do this, if he had not tried to corrode the way the parliament worked, they would have said, yes, you misled the house. Yes, it was reckless, but we're going to put a sanction on you of less than 10 days. If it was less than 10 days, it wouldn't trigger the election that could see him lose the whole of his political career. But because he's behaved this way, because he's tried to bring the standard system down all around parliament, they actually seem like they're going to be sterner. And I suspect it'll be because of that that he'll find himself in hotter water than he might otherwise have been. All of which, frankly, is morally really quite reassuring and enjoyable. And I'd be lying if I said that I didn't spend a huge amount of this week just laughing and laughing as I watched the process take place. Ian, I hope you will come back to tell us what is happening across the pond and make us feel a little better. (laughs) That's good. I will endeavor to do that. That's right. We'd like to think of you as our schadenfreude (laughs) correspondent. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ashley Parker is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ashley Parker. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you in this, at the end of the weirdest news week ever. I mean, I guess whenever you're covering Trump, you're always unprecedented times, but this feels <laughs> more unprecedented than usual. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, for at least covering Trump and his presidency, right, a lot of it was you know, as a White House reporter, was responding to the latest thing he did or said or was trying to do. And this is actually, and again, we've certainly been following what he's been putting out on Truth Social, but this has been this kind of weird waiting, holding period, waiting for something that would be potentially unprecedented um, in modern times to happen, which is a former president getting indicted. <laughs> Will you explain to me, because I think it's relevant, this entire news cycle started on Saturday morning, almost a week ago, with a truth from Donald Trump that said, I'm going to be arrested on Tuesday. After that, two hours later, there was a follow-up from one of his spokespeople who said, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> He kind of made that up, right? I mean, can you explain? Yeah, so we we all see this. And of course, it does exactly what Trump loves doing, which is sending sort of not just reporters, but the entire country, the entire world into a a frenzy with him squarely at the center. And then, you know, when everyone reaches out to his team and his campaign and people in his world to figure out, like, what does he mean? What does right. he know that we don't know? The sort of answer that comes back is, oh, we don't know either. We, we didn't know he was going to send that. We don't really understand where he got that from. I mean, I've talked to some people since who sort of claim that he got that idea from, you know, the sort of New York police uh, tried to coordinate potential security logistics with the Secret Service and, and something leaked and Trump got wind of it. But that feels more like a conspiracy theory than, you know, anything we feel comfortable like nailing down and putting in the paper. <laughs> right, 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 right. And there clearly were a lot of whispers, but not a lot, you know, because there was some sense from the Manhattan AG that they were going to go, right? 
Yes. At The Post, we have sort of been pretty careful about how we've been phrasing this. I, I don't believe we've said, you know, a, a likely or an expected indictment the way some other news organizations have. Right. But and again, I'm not a legal expert. But yes, the indications are sort of historically, Trump was invited to testify before the grand jury. And that's often something that happens at the very end when a case is is wrapping up, right? So it was a very clear signal that this case was wrapping up. And that's also something that often, but not always happens shortly before an indictment. So reading the tea leaves, people could kind of feel comfortable making that assumption. We at the Post did not, but it was very clear that something was going to happen either way, that this case is coming to a close, whether it ends in an indictment or not. I mean, what's happened now seems kind of extraordinary because nothing has happened. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry to put too fine a point on it. Nothing has happened yet. And we're all sort of still waiting with with bated breath, right? I mean, I think we and everyone else has news coverage plans ready to go for any outcome and any contingency. And every day we sort of show up at work ready, (laughs) ready to to launch and report on whatever has happened. And then like every day we go home and are like, okay, (laughs) let's like, let's do it again tomorrow. (laughs) To just look at this in a slightly different way, there would be no way to not cover that. I mean, you couldn't say like, I mean, you couldn't say, well, not cover this. It does seem like all the evidence points in one way. Yeah, I mean, you would sort of be negligent as a news organization if you didn't have coverage plans, right. frankly, for, for all conceivable outcomes. I think that was something a lot of news organizations learned on election night 2016, right. <laughs> that anything that anything can happen, the thing you expect and the thing that all signs point towards and the thing that many people, for whatever reason, did not expect, right? Yeah. So yeah, and it's, it's a huge story no matter what happens. Um, and it's a story, you know, with not just potential legal ramifications, but also this is what I've been focused more on with potential huge political ramifications. So let's talk about those political ramifications. I want to game this out for you. Right now, he's raised, you know, more than a million dollars, probably at this point, more like two million dollars. Right now, this has been, I think, a big win for him. Do you think that's right? I mean, it it sort of depends on what context. And the truth is, I don't think we totally know. Yes, it has been a huge fundraising win, right? Like he he is always good at when he is portrayed as under attack um, or as a victim. That is always a boon for Trump fundraising. Yes, that's true. His team has come around to the idea and not just his team, but a lot of Republicans, including a lot of Republicans who don't like him and would like to see him go away and even some Democrats to this idea that this is something uh, they believe that very clearly helps him in the short term, especially in shoring up his base in a Republican primary. And even maybe, again, it's worth noting, his base doesn't actually need to be shored up, right? Like those people are going nowhere. Those people are diehards, yeah. But yes, it it shores up his base, right? Like probably the crowds in Waco this weekend will be maybe even bigger and even more fired up in this current moment than they would have before. But also potentially in the short term and shoring up some of these Republicans who maybe voted for him twice, but were curious about a a DeSantis or a a Tim Scott or whoever. But there's also a view, and again, we just don't know the answers to these questions yet, that it certainly could hurt him in 
a general election, which is ultimately like the final test that matters. Right, it's right. nice to win your it's really nice to win your party's nomination, but it's like even cooler to win the White House. That's the <laughs> main goal. So, you know, among these kind of more moderate Republicans, these independent voters, these Democrats who maybe have some concerns about Biden but are certainly not gonna vote for Trump again. Right. You know, these like forty thousand people basically in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, this is the sort of thing that does not help him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also, it's worth noting, I mean, I spent, I guess it was probably last month or so, but I spent a couple of days interviewing more than 36 voters in Pennsylvania and the posted a huge project where there were five of us reporters out across the country interviewing more than 150 voters total, all who had voted for Trump often both times. And even among them, there's a sense of sort of chaos, exhaustion, and fatigue. And even though they don't blame him, they like him, they generally like his policies as president, and they'll say, look, these things are witch hunts, right? The media's out to get him, the Democrats are out to get him, the Rhino Republicans are out to get him, the Never Trumpers are out to get him. They, they don't blame him for this, and they'll certainly put you know anything that comes out of the Manhattan DA in this category. Right. They also say, but at the end of the day, we really want to beat Biden or whoever the Democrat is. And at the end of the day, it might just be better to have a candidate who's not being so unfairly persecuted, right? right? right. Like, so, so it doesn't even help him necessarily with all Republican voters. Is there a world in which voters make a decision that says, I mean, this is the thing I'm the most focused on, is, is there a world in which voters decide, like, for example, if you were, and again, you've gone into my head now, so I apologize, but <laughs> here's this opportunity, right, this week. And and say you were a Republican who wanted to win, which obviously mm-hmm. they don't, right? I mean, Kevin McCarthy, like Saturday, Saturday, right, after Trump truths, he says, like, this is a partisan witch hunt, right? Like a few hours later, he immediately is like, whatever it is, he, our guy didn't do it. Republicans had a, yet another opportunity to with him and they were like no well not just kevin mccarthy i mean look at what's more interesting to me is look at his 2024 republican primary rivals people who are either already declared running against him or we know are very likely to run against him right what about ron desantis yeah ron desantis mike pence yeah vivek ramaswamy nikki haley Mike Pence came out and basically said the same thing. Ron DeSantis did kind of a a three-step, right? First, he was quiet. Then he came out and attacked the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg. You know, again, sort of say this is a political persecution, but also took the opportunity to very clearly repeat the fairly sorted issue at the heart of this investigation, which is... You know, Trump paid money, hush money to a porn star, right? And noting that, like, he, he would know nothing about how that sort of thing works. Right, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Which, fair, most people don't, are not in the weeds about money to a porn star. You know, <laughs> they've sort of made this calculation that, in, in theory, this should be a vulnerability, right? A former president potentially getting indicted. And they have made a calculation that this is not the moment to try to deliver a knockout blow. And if anything, if they don't stand behind him... A certain portion of the base will punish him, which is a fascinating moment. I mean, the, the, the person who maybe made sort of the most accurate point in certain ways 
was Governor Chris Christie, who is in a very different mold. If he ends up running for president, you could see him sort of kamikaze style trying to destroy Trump in the same way he did to Rubio on that New Hampshire debate stage. (laughs) Right, right, right. But but Christie's point was sort of like, you know, maybe Trump's right where he likes to be at the center of turmoil and chaos. Maybe this helps him in the short term. But like, I think we can all agree on some general conventional wisdom that like, in general, getting indicted is like not a net positive. <laughs> I mean, I almost wonder if it's like almost so echo chambered that they no longer are able to see even a sense of what like a normal non-MAGA voter who could, you know, the persuadables might feel. Well, what's interesting is and I, I just had a story on this. There's been a lot of discussions both from other Republicans running or expected to run in 2024, Republican strategists, pollsters, Republican groups of sort of how do you defeat the first challenge for them is how do you defeat someone like Trump in a Republican primary? And the base on the whole does not want to see him attacked. Right. Right. He's at his strongest when he's a victim when he's an outsider, when he's fighting against the man, the establishment, the swamp. They're sort of learning the lessons from 2016. They're also learning that, you know, what what worked in a general is not what works, obviously, in a Republican primary. And what they've sort of alighted on is this idea, and they haven't perfected it yet, of, look, he did he did a lot of good things, right? But like almost coming at him from a place of disappointment, right. you know, like we were so excited. He was great in 2016, he, you know, but he said he was going to build the wall and, and he just did it. Right. <laughs> and he said Mexico was going to pay for the wall <laughs> and and they just did right. it. Um, and, and, you know, we just, he's, he's great. And it's not even his fault right. about all these political persecutions, but we just like, we need to be Biden. And it's just time to move on from all these distractions to a new generation of leaders. So I think that's what you are going to ultimately hear. Yeah. I mean, the thing about all of this stuff is it might work if you had a normal person, you know, if you had a W or you had a Reagan, but you don't have a normal Republican. Trump is not going to say, oh, OK, I guess my time is over. He's going to say, Rob, de sanctimonious. But he's, he's certainly not going to bow out, yeah. right, or or halt his campaign. But I do think one thing you're seeing is what, one thing they learned in 2016 and 2020 and throughout his entire presidency very clearly is that attacks on his character don't work. Right. Because love him or hate him, who Donald Trump is, is just fully baked into the cake. And frankly, you knew that when you went to the polls in 2016, right? The idea that one more controversy or scandal or woman coming out of the, you know, coming out to allege something against him will change anyone's mind. It simply won't, right? So that's why you're not really hearing arguments about, can you believe that he might have paid hush money to a porn star? Everyone's like, <laughs> yeah. right? Like everyone's like, yeah. We like we we can believe that, and it either bothers us or it doesn't. But it, it's more the sort of again the like chaos, exhaustion, fatigue. Like, wouldn't it be nice to have a candidate who's not just facing this investigation, but we should note three others that we haven't you know we haven't even talked about and haven't even 
drawn to a close. But I want to just talk about this. Caitlin Collins tweeted this from Truth Social. Trump indicates that there could be potential death and destruction if he's charged. It seems like the base, for whatever reason, is less, and perhaps it's because many of them went to jail for January 6th, seem less interested in causing violence in his name. Including his Truth Social about a week earlier about, you know, protest and take back our nation as well. It all just lands in a very different context after January 6th, right? Sort of the thing people thought could never happen, happened once. And so what you have seen um, in this truth that Caitlin tweeted just came out kind of 12 hours ago. But if you look at the one about protest, take back our nation, you very clearly saw Republicans up and down the board sort of saying like, Nothing but peaceful protests, right? right? Either trying to claim that that's what Trump meant or calling for that themselves. And this idea, which, you know, it it was actually funny. It was a quote, a background anonymous quote I put in a Washington Post piece after the election, before January 6th, that gets resurfaced like every three weeks. But from a Republican saying, look, we just need to give him a little time to like send some tweets, go golfing. Yes, it's not like he's trying to overturn the election. Yeah. And then he'll and then he'll leave. That notion is gone. And sort of every Republican understands or or seems is behaving as if they know they want to do their part to say this is not going to happen again. And you're seeing that in all of their responses. When an anonymous Republican told you that quote, were you like, oh, this is a throwaway quote? Or did you think like this will continually haunt us for the next I probably shouldn't admit this, but um, when I, I, I mean, I knew it was a good quote and that's why I put it in the story. But it, at that moment when this person told it to me, it seems outlandish, of course, in hindsight, right? After after the deadly January 6th attacks <laughs> yes. on the U.S. Yes. Capitol. But, it, but at the time, this person was articulating what was widely yeah. believed in not just Republican circles, but even in people in, in the Trump yeah. White House, right? You have to remember at that time, we were chasing rumors that like he was going to go to Mar-a-Lago for Thanksgiving and just never come back, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So it, it wasn't, I mean, again, this hindsight 2020, this quote resurfaces literally <laughs> like every fortnight. Yeah. But at the time, I didn't think, wow, this is, you know, going to seem very embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like a totally reasonable, reasonable point of view in that moment. Here we are back in this sort of weird Trumpy news cycle. Do you think there's a chance? And again, this is like I'm asking a question that's like your opinion, but I'm not going to ask you your political opinion because obviously I don't want to be mean. Uh-huh. And I just had Charlie <laughs> Savage on. So I know I have to, you know, good with the straight reporters and not try to get uh-huh. them to have opinions. But Thank you for not getting me fired, Molly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John Allen is always like, I will not weigh in. If you want to say something, I'll agree. (laughs) But I'm just curious. I mean, do you think that there's a world in which the Manhattan DA doesn't go first and that this just, you know, the DOJ goes first or Georgia goes first? I mean, or do you really think that because of what happened this week, the Manhattan DA will go first? So this is really just a guess on your part. But and you can add the caveats you want. Yeah, no, I mean, I will say like based on, and again, this is not my reporting, but based on my colleagues reporting and my kind of consumption of it and and discussions I've had, it it seemed like at least initially the Manhattan DA was going to be first in drawing to a close. I don't know that that means an indictment, but 
the Manhattan DA in inviting Trump to testify seemed ahead of schedule of these other investigations. But again, like you can, we haven't been paying as much attention, but you can look at Fulton County, uh, where they were saying down there that there should be, you know, announcements kind of imminently. <laughs> right. So, I mean, the truth is, I just, I, I don't know. And I don't really know what those final outcomes or announcements will, will be. No, nobody does. Right. No, exactly right. I mean, that is, and you know, that is something I feel like that just the concrete of it is like we've lost a little bit of sight of that really nobody, including Trump or his people or Jim Jordan, really even know what is, you know, until we see paper, we don't know anything really. Yeah. I mean, these investigations are supposed to be leak proof. That's how they're supposed to work. You know, there's tea leaves people are trying to read here and there, but I sort of, I think we'll know when we know. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ashley Parker. Thanks for having me. Ian Ward is a reporter at Politico. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ian. Thanks for having me. Jesse read this piece in Politico magazine. He was like, you got to get this guy. And we agreed, which we often mostly do. But I'm going to read the title because I feel like that's the beginning of this whole interview. The Federalist Society isn't quite so sure about democracy anymore. I mean, when I read that, I was like, yeah. But I was also like, really? Uh <laughs> Talk to me about where this, talk to me about, I want the whole story here. What were you doing? What, where you came to this conclusion, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So I've been covering the conservative legal movement for a while now. And I went down to Austin at the beginning of March for the Federal Society's um, National Student Symposium, which is an annual gathering that the Federal Society hosts for its um, student law chapters. So mostly right-leaning law students. And it's sort of a weekend-long get-together, cocktail parties, um, panels, networking sessions. And, you know, these are students who are coming from mostly elite law schools, right? And they get together sort of to discuss ideas and have debates. And, you know, it's, it's, they invite a lot of conservative lawyers. Federal judges are there. It's a big opportunity for law students to meet future employers. But, I mean, the main, the main meat of the symposium are these panels where lawyers get together, lawyers and judges get together to debate sort of what's up with the conservative legal movement. And the theme of the symposium this year was law and democracy. <laughs> Ironic. Yeah. I want to just pause for a second. So this is like CPAC if the people who were part of it actually mattered. Yeah, it's kind of a, a nerdy CPAC. Right. You know, CPAC, the crowd this year, I mean, you saw the reports coming out of it. CPAC was smart people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, CPAC was smart people and everyone's wearing a suit and tie and, you know. And went to Yale Law School. Uses their salad fork before their other fork, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the theme was law and democracy, which is a sort of pregnant topic, to say the least, for the conservative legal movement right now. Um, as it sort of figures out how to navigate the post-Dobbs world and navigate its role in the country now that conservatives have a majority on the Supreme Court and after the Trump years have gotten lots of federal judges on the bench. And there's a tension there with you know law and democracy, and there always has been within the conservative legal movement. I mean, the Federal Society at least was founded with this sort of dual mandate, which was you know, they say it's emphatically the uh, province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is, not what the law should be, right? That's kind of aping the Marbury versus right. Madison thing. But, you know, and they'll acknowledge to you that those things can kind of be intention, right? On the one hand, they 
are tasked with reading what's written in the Constitution, right? And they apply a sort of originalist framework to that, trying to make sense of what the document meant at the time of its founding. But at the same time, they've championed this idea of judicial restraint, which is that judges should in general defer to democratic process and try not to intervene too directly and not make the law just just understand it. Except when they want him to. Yeah, and it's changed over time. And that was part of the big takeaway from the piece was I actually talked to Eugene Meyer, who's the president and CEO of the Federal Society. And he says, you know, he told me there have always been these, these, this tension within the conservative legal movement, but um, that over time and in recent years, especially the group has moved away from sort of an idea of judicial restraint. <laughs> really? You don't say. <laughs> Yeah, more assertively towards an idea. They say reading the law is written. You can quibble with that as you want. But yeah, so that was sort of the general tone um, that that the organization is moving away from judicial restraint and embracing a sort of more assertive role. (laughs) I have to tell you, I feel like... like brilliantly ironic, right? There's an irony there. (laughs) Moving away from judicial restraint. Really, you don't say. Yeah, I mean, I think judicial restraint made sense for the conservative legal movement, you know, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, when they really saw the courts as pulling the country to the left and as as more progressive than the, the general population. And it made sense in that case to say, well, you know, judges shouldn't intervene in the legislative process, so on and so on. But now that the tables are turned, I think <laughs> the, their commitment to that set of principles is, is being tested. <laughs> yeah. Now it's just every lunatic for themselves. So talk to me about some of the other ideas you saw coming out of there. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a panel on election law where the idea of the independent state legislature theory came up, which is in the Supreme Court's considering now and more v. Harper. And that's the idea that state legislatures should have more, some people say total, some people say just more control over um, the execution of federal elections. And it seems unlikely that the court's going to adopt that idea in its most radical form. And many of the people at the conference were skeptical about it. And noted like this would be incredibly disruptive to the American electoral system. But, you know, there's a, a bit of, of tension within that movement because the judges who have flirted with that idea on the high court, you know, do have ties to the federal society and are sort of poster children for the conservative legal movement. So I don't want to give the impression that like the federal society is a single entity, right? Or right. that the conservative legal movement has no fissures. You know, there's a lot of politics within those organizations. But so some some members, you know, are really hesitant to adopt the uh, you know, independent civil justice theory, and some are more, you know, willing to play around with it. But it's in that world, and people in that world are talking about it, which when you look, you know, sort of at the details of the of the theory is a sort of alarming thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you explain why it's alarming? I would recommend, you know, going to read some of the some of the things that have been written about the independent state legislature theory. But I think as we saw in 2020, if state legislatures have the opportunity to exert more power in federal elections, I think we, we basically know how that would how that would play out. Right, right, right. You know, I feel like we're in the forefront of conservative judiciary, kind of like they've, they've sort of caught the car and are trying to figure out what to do with it. They have a kind of power that they've never had before, right? Because they control the Supreme Court now. What was your sense on how they're going to use this power? Yeah, I mean, I think that really is an open question. I think part of what compelled me to go to the conference was that 
it's a forum for young people within the right. conservative legal movement to share their views. And I do think there are some emerging generational divides within the conservative legal movement. Oh, explain that. A good example is the conservative jurisprudence towards what's known as like the administrative state or executive agencies. So for many years, conservative lawyers have been critical of the court's decision. It's known as the Chevron Doctrine, which gives pretty broad latitude towards administrative agencies to interpret law and, and enact law in the way they see fit. Conservatives have traditionally not liked that because they think it you know, empowers the bureaucracy too much and takes the decision-making power out of the out of democratically elected officials' hands and puts it in the hands of sort of like Washington egghead bureaucrats. Right. But there is a sort of grumbling and some movement among younger conservatives who say, you know, maybe what we want to do with the administrative state is not gut it and take away all the power from it. Maybe what we want to do is use the power of the administrative state to advance, you know, our vision of what the country should look like. So there's some younger legal conservatives who are kind of doing a 180 on the Chevron doctrine. I mean, that's just one of them. I wrote a piece back in December about a growing movement led by an academic at Harvard named Adrian Vermeule, who calls himself a post-liberal. <laughs> We're going to die. He and Patrick Deneen is the big spokesperson for those right. those academics. You know, like he, he is kind of articulating this vision of a legal theory called common good constitutionalism, which basically throws out the window all the presuppositions of the conservative legal movement and says, you know, we don't want to do originalism. We don't want to do textualism. We don't want to do judicial restraint. We want to use the law not to protect individual rights and liberties, but to instantiate a common good, which in his definition is a pretty radically conservative and catholically inflected vision of American politics. And he's gotten a lot of traction among young conservatives. So that's another fault line. Can you give us an example of what that would be? He has advocated for, this is sort of funny, but banning pornography, right? Oh, wow. Good for them. <laughs> that's a wildly unpopular. I, yeah. I wish them lots of luck. Yeah. But right, that runs afoul of sort of traditional conservative views on First Amendment right. problems, right? Which is that there's be sort of free speech absolutism. He says, no, you know, pornography is a is a social ill and conservatives should use the power of the state to ban it. <laughs> Good luck, team. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, stuff like that, you know, really restrictive abortion laws, um, bans on homosexuality and, oh, wow. and gay marriage, things like that. That's another fault line within the within the conservative legal movement. I think it's alighted a lot of the time by some of the coverage of the conservative legal movement, which can assume that they sort of all walk in lockstep and that they're all on the same page and that they're basically just doing the bidding of the GOP. And I do think there's a lot more factional disputes that are worth paying attention to within that world. That's pretty interesting. I mean, it does seem to me like conservatives have really figured out how to juice their judiciary in a way that liberals, you know, they don't have the same infrastructure, right? Yeah, I mean, there have been sort of aborted efforts over the years to build quote unquote, a, a left wing federalist society. And that has failed. I mean, there's the American Constitution Association. I think that's the name, but it's not the same thing. And that has to do with all sorts of things. Primarily, I think <laughs> uh, the right has much deeper pockets when it comes to funding right. the type of organization that is the federal society. I think they figured out how to use judicial power well, but they also underneath the execution of the judicial power, there is a lot of dissent and debate and disagreement about, you know, exactly how that power should be executed. And I don't think it does anyone 
a service to ignore that. Yeah, no, no. I think that's, I mean, I think if anything, that's sort of the biggest game in town that no one's talking about is the incredible... I mean, from what I understand, and I, you know, I'm very, I am friendly with someone who was very involved in the Federalist Society, George Conway. And so, I mean, from what I understand from younger lawyers, too, the, their tentacles are long and they kind of groom people in a way that I don't think liberals even understand how to get involved in. Yeah, I mean, I have some people... These are ambitious people, right? You know, they are gunning for federal clerkships and um, positions in, in high-powered legal firms. And, you know, a couple of people said to me, being a member of the Federalist Society is a necessary credential if you want a clerkship with a powerful federal judge. So, and, you know, these the people at the conference were, you know, anywhere from just out of undergraduate in their early 30s. And they have chapters on undergraduate campuses and law school campuses around the country. So, yeah, its tentacles are very, very, very far reaching. There seems to be, to me, a connection between Catholicism and this conservative legal movement. Like if you look at the Supreme Court, there is a like they're all Catholics. Have you seen sort of an overlay between that and the Federalist Society? Well, I'll just give a quick anecdote. I mean, I know it's a dicey question, but it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is interesting. I was at this conference, which was on Friday and Saturday night, and I overheard a, a couple of the law students on Saturday evening and said, hey, we got to dip out early to hit Saturday mass before you know we <laughs> head home on Sunday. I just thought that was funny because, yeah. yeah, there is a pretty strong Catholic. I think there are legal theorists on the right who lean explicitly into the Catholicism. Adrian Vermeule is one example of that. If you think about the makeup of the Supreme Court, there's a religious component to this. I mean, whether or not it's a chicken or an egg, right, we don't know. Yeah, I think thinking about the question of religious liberty and the conservative legal movement's view towards religious liberty over the past 10 years is sort of instructive in this front. You know, there used to be a sort of let people do as they want attitude that religious liberty was not interfering, was creating sort of neutral spaces where people didn't explicitly practice their religion, but, you know, weren't compelled to abide by any sort of religious faith. And that's shifted a bit now. You're now seeing cases like last term, there was a case involving a high school football coach who um, prayed on the field right. and the conservative majority ruled that, that that was allowed in the name of protecting religious liberty. And they construed protecting religious liberty not as creating religiously neutral spaces, but as creating positive protections for people to express their faith in public forums, right? Right. So that's a sort of shift within how they're thinking, how the right's been thinking about religious liberty that I think is sort of instructive about their broader goals. Yeah, I'll say. So interesting. I really appreciate you joining us and please come back. And I think like, you know, what you're doing is really interesting. I mean, sitting through those (laughs) (laughs) panels. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now, your moment of fuckery. Molly Jungfast. Jesse Cannon. Trump, possibly the greatest non-intentional comedian of our time. Let me read a, the most ironic quote of all time. Trump told his, his supporters in Waco, Texas, I am your redemption. And ironically, this is on the 30th anniversary 
of the Waco standoff right as that documentary dropped on Netflix. And all I have to say is, yes, sir, you sure are their redemption. I mean, yeah, if redemption is whatever, making everything worse is pretty amazing stuff today. This weekend, Trump did a rally on the 30th anniversary of Waco. Waco, which is, you know, saying the quiet part loud. Behind Trump was uh, footage from January 6th. So in case you were wondering if they endorse it, they endorse it. And for that, that moment where they started to play January 6th coverage, that is uh, this where I think that was a sort of step further than I've ever seen. And so that is our moment of fuckery. I saw somebody on Twitter say that there's no way that someone who went to jail for January 6th doesn't speak at the RNC this next time. Don't you agree? Very likely. Very likely. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.